This week on Full Stack Radio, I talked to Michael Feathers, author of Working Effectively with Legacy Code, about strategies for writing cleaner error handling code, the tell don't ask principle, and transforming data with collection pipelines. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 39. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Full Stack Radio. Before we get the interview started today, I just wanted to share a quick announcement with you. If you've been following me at all online, you'll know that I've been working on a book called Refactoring to Collections that shows you how to take ugly, confusing procedural code and refactor it into simple, clean transformations using functional programming ideas and collection objects. So the book is almost ready, and if you're at all interested in learning more about it, you can grab a free chapter sample at adamwathen.me slash refactoring dash two dash collections. So check it out and let me know what you think. Here's the interview with Michael Feathers. Hey everyone, welcome to Full Stack Radio episode 39. I'm your host Adam Wathen and today I'm joined by Michael Feathers, the author of Working Effectively with Legacy Code. How's it going, Michael? Doing fine. Nice to be here with you. Awesome. So yeah, the reason I wanted to have you on the show is you have done a lot of interesting things in a lot of different interesting areas. And we started uh, getting talking about maybe the idea of bringing you on and you were saying that you were working on a book about better ways to approach error handling and software. So I thought it'd be interesting to kind of talk about that and what some of the motivations behind that are and hopefully get into some of the strategies that you've used to uh, improve that stuff. So if you wouldn't mind, could you give a little bit of background into the error handling topic in general and kind of what got you interested in it and what you think some of the problems are? Uh, yeah, sure. I became interested in it because I have like this affinity towards uh, areas of software development that people don't seem to pay much attention to. And I think that kind of led me to legacy code back in the beginning. Uh, with error handling, I've just kind of noticed that over and over again I visit teams and it seems like there are areas of their code that are really dominated by error handling code. And that's kind of striking because if you look at software from a single responsibility point of view, you know, you can't help but see that as a violation, right? It's like you have uh, the, the thing that you're sensibly supposed to be doing in a method or a class and then all this error handling that's happening around it. Mm-hmm. I had an insight years ago, though, about this and it came back to something that I was really kind of scared of admitting. I was scared of admitting for a long while in the industry that I don't really like logging in code. And uh, how do you actually say that? Because we all know that logging is vital for production. It's a very important tool. So I never really say to people, it's like, oh, my God, I hate looking at these log statements. But I ran into two friends of mine, Steve Freeman and Nat Price in London, and uh, you know, two uh, core people who basically were part of the early extreme programming movement. And they had an interesting insight. They said that with logging, if you design your system in such a way that it throws off the information you care about, you don't really need to have logging kind of baked into the code. Uh, it's more like you you announce this event when something happens, and then it gets logged outside of the scope of the work that's being done. So you don't have like these scattered logging statements all the way throughout. <clears throat> From that insight, I um, arrived at the idea of trying to do the same thing with error handling. Every time that I saw error handling code, try to figure out how to move it someplace else or get rid of it entirely. And uh, so a lot of the work I'm doing right now is, is about finessing business problems, finessing code in various different ways, so that it can be more like mainline code. It can be more like um, code that just does what you expect it to do, rather than having to go and perform all sorts of crazy checks. So uh, that's, that's where I'm going with this. Yeah, that's awesome. That makes a lot of sense to me. Like I've run into the the logging thing all the time. You know, every time you 
you have some error show up and you need to debug it. You insert a log statement somewhere, wait for the error to happen again and kind of see what happened. You know what I mean? Especially when things are working differently in production than they are in uh, in your local environment or whatever. And, and quite often the logging statement stays there forever, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't feel right to have to go back and change that code just to be able to inspect it, right? In an ideal situation, you'd be able to get the information that you needed without having to go and add stuff to the code that's not necessarily related to the job that that code is supposed to be doing. Like you were saying, it seems like, you know, a single responsibility principle violation. Yeah. With the error handling stuff, I'd be interested in knowing, like, do you have uh, any specific examples of situations that you see people run into where you have strategies for for solving those problems? Uh, Yeah. Uh, A lot of what I am kind of, you know, relating in terms of this comes down to a system model. And that system model is that it's kind of like a system has a, kind of like a protective shell in the soft center. And what you really should do is, as much as possible, try to solve the problems at the edges, right? Mm-hmm. And by edge, I basically mean, you know, uh, anything outside the computational core of the system. So, you, you know, if you're touching a database, if you're doing user interaction, um, if you're going across the network, all these other things, right at the edge, you want to go and solve problems before they can actually go and get into the center. Just as a simple example, it's like... Uh, uh, oh gosh, this is such a simple example, but there still are applications out there that basically have you type in dates, right, rather than using a calendar picker. Yeah. Right? And it's like, it's just a, a simple case where you can have a, a tool which facilitates interaction with the user so that bad data never gets into the system at all, right? And um, with that, you're able to move on in a good way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think like... Um that's one of those things that I think with experience, you start to develop as like an intuition, like don't let bad stuff into the system. And the earlier you can handle something, the less defensive you have to be in the more interesting parts of the application. Right. And I think that's, that's an insight that I feel like probably a lot of people have, but haven't identified it and given it like a name and pointed it out as like an important thing. Are there any other things like that, that you've, that you've come across that uh, you think are important to like specifically point out that maybe some people do intuitively, but I've never really noticed that like, this is a way that I think about approaching, avoiding errors in my code. Yeah. There's uh, there's situations uh, like say you're doing something like, um, yeah, most music players these days have kind of like a, a shuffling feature, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to go and shuffle, you know, a playlist. As a programmer, there are many different ways of going and approaching that problem. You know, one simple way is to go and say, I will just go ahead and randomize the list, right? Then you get into the situation of like, what if your random number generator goes and actually picks two numbers, picks the same track twice in a row? How do you handle that, right? And um, it's it's funny with this because then you can put a check into the code to go and say, well, if I'm playing the current... if the track I'm playing now is the same as the last track, then go and jump ahead one, right? Okay. Uh, so that you're able to go and sort of avoid that kind of glitch with things. And um, it seems like it's kind of a minor thing, but rather than going and putting this special case logic into the code to do this sort of thing, what you can do is essentially go ahead and create a duplication, duplicate of the playlist, randomize that, and then pull off every track that you actually have uh, played so that you never have a repeat, right? So it's kind of, it's kind of like you know, finessing away checks that you might have in your code so that you can have a uh, cleaner code. Yeah, I feel like that's something that um, I've been doing more and more, like always looking for opportunities where like, if I have to special case check something, what can mm-hmm. I do so that that's no longer a special case? Um, yeah. You know what I mean? And I feel like a lot of the time it comes down to using things like, like benign defaults or mm-hmm. like, um, 
you know, null objects and stuff like that in, in some yeah. situations. Can you think of any examples where you find that sort of approach useful or interesting? Or what do you think about those approaches in general? Well, I think they're, in general, they, they are great. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I think finesse is really a powerful word uh, in conjunction with this. Um, I know I went through a span a couple of years ago of just trying to, you know, uh, as I was writing code, uh, avoid checks as much as possible and just see where it led me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it would lead me to things that were a little bit more complicated or had a bit of a higher conceptual model, you know, than uh, the code with checks might have. But I still think it's a great exercise for developers to to dig into. Um, interesting that you mentioned the null object pattern. I, that's one of the things I talk about quite a bit. I think uh, we can have a much more expanded view of that than most people have in the industry. It's kind of like uh, when you have lists of data, for instance, an empty list can be seen as a null object in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, uh, I guess as an example of that, it's like if you are chaining some calls, like I, I have a list and I basically select a certain, you know, I have a filter on the list and then I go and I map the values that come out from that. At the point that the list gen- generates into an empty list, it doesn't matter because you can chain operations off of that that um, accept an empty list as input and just do the right thing. Yeah, I, I can think of specific situations I've run into where maybe like a method takes a parameter that might be null, and then if if it's null, you want to like return an empty collection. Otherwise, you want to you know perform some series of operations on it. And yeah. uh, solutions like being able to just say, well, rather than like checking if it's null and specifically returning an, an empty list in that case, just default it to an empty list because running all these operations on the empty list is effectively a no-op and you don't have to yeah. think about that, that special case anymore. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, you, you just mentioned, you know, uh, a method that can go accept null as an argument. I really have a strong opinion about that. I really feel that um, as much as possible, we should sort of uh, make sure that null doesn't leak into our systems. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, one piece of advice I have for people is that if you are working with an external API that returns null to you, do something about it, right? You never want to be in a situation where you're inside the core of a system and asking yourself, you know, is this parameter null, right? That's really an awful situation to be in. Unfortunately, you know, we're able to go and sort of move past that a bit more now with, uh, you know, like the option monad and various different things that we're seeing in languages. Do you mind uh, kind of explaining what the option monad is for people who maybe aren't as familiar with, I guess, I guess that's kind of like a functional concept or it seems to appear in a lot of languages. I, like Haskell, I think, has that sort of thing. Yeah, the first time I saw it was in Haskell. There's um, there's a monad there. It's called the maybe type. And um, it's, uh, I guess, the best way to explain this. It's like you can have a variable of the maybe type, and it has two possible values, either you know the value which is the result of some operation or nothing, right? And um, what's interesting is that unlike variables that you might have in, say, you know, Java or you know, JavaScript, you don't get to go to the variable and say, hey, are you null or not, right? You don't... Uh, you don't get to dereference it and find out mysteriously that it is null and then have to deal with an exception. What happens is that with that monad, you have to sort of ask it, you know, to perform an operation on the value, okay? Um, if it happens to be there, and if it's not there, then you get to do something else, right? Okay. Uh, but it's almost like there's two ways to get the values out. Either you perform an operation that can happen only if the value is there, or you can kind of like use like a case clause and say, okay, well... You know, if you're there, you do this. Otherwise, you do this. And so there's no possibility of dereferencing a null at all. So it's, uh, it's a little bit more ceremony in programming to go and 
deal with things, but it goes and eliminates the potential for null errors. And uh, trying to understand it a little bit, it's a little bit confusing to me because I've never actually worked with it in in real day to day code. But are you saying like? You can perform operations on like an optional type and it, it'll basically just like swallow them if it has nothing to perform it on. Yeah, there's various different ways that uh, that these um, express themselves in language. So Haskell has them, Scala has them, Java is getting them. Uh, Java actually has them now. Uh, but yeah, some uh, some operations like mapping, you know, onto a, a thing which may not be there. Uh, it's just a no-op, right? Yeah. Uh, I, the, the place where I'm, you know, uh, most used to seeing them is in Haskell where you... You can uh, use a case clause against the variable and say, okay, well, if it's just this value, then do this thing. If it's nothing, then you do this other thing. So um, imagine having, like, say you're in JavaScript and you uh, you want to find out whether something's null or not. Instead of going and just sort of acting against it, to actually apply something to the value, to actually use the value, you have to kind of case clause it. You have to sort of say, if you're really there, you do this. If you're not there, you do that. So is the benefit that it just kind of like makes it explicit to consumers, you know, of this, you know, piece of data that, you know, this might actually be null. Whereas in, without this sort of thing, you run into situations where a null gets into your system and you might not even know that you have it and you just call something on it and it causes things to blow up. Yeah. It's the explicitness is the, is the key thing with it. And also there's, well, there's an aspect of it too, where the, um, you know, the variables themselves, you don't have to really care. You pass them around and everything like this, but, and they could possibly be, something which represents nothing, but there are lots of operations you can still apply against them in many cases where you don't really care. It's kind of like a null object in that sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, jumping back a little bit, I think it was kind of interesting uh, that we were talking about like methods accepting null as an argument. Yeah. And um, it, it kind of makes me wonder, are, are optional parameters kind of like a smell then, or is it only a smell if it could be null? Or I don't know, what do you think about like optional parameters in general? I like APIs to be as explicit as they can be. I know when I first started working in Rails, I saw an awful lot of uh, optional parameters in Ruby. And, um, you know, you get used to it. I, I think, uh, yeah, my, my option, <laughs> my inclination is to go and basically make things as explicit as possible. This thing accepts three arguments. These, this is what they happen to be. Yeah. But I think that there are a number of cases in programming where you want to have that kind of generality. And sometimes when you are creating a framework for somebody else to use, it can be beneficial. I think the big question I uh, have whenever I see use of that is whether all the cases are really covered, right? So if I if you pass in something which is um, you know optionally not there, is it really well defined behavior if it doesn't happen to be there, right? And most of the cases where people really use these things, that tends to be the case, and that's pretty good. So yeah, just as long as the behavior is well defined. Yeah, I feel like there's almost like an interesting distinction between like a parameter that's like truly optional and a parameter that we will give you a default for if you're not providing it. You know what I mean? Does that mm -hmm. d does that distinction make sense to you? Like the idea that like, okay, you, this parameter is not even needed is more like the parameter being optional. I think those are the situations where things start to get messy. But in the situations where you can provide like a meaningful default, it almost comes back to the stuff we were talking about before where like if you can default an optional parameter to an empty list instead of null, that's going to be infinitely better. Or if you're in a language like Ruby where you're lucky enough to be able to use basically any expression for the default value of an optional parameter, I think you can do some interesting things to avoid having to worry in the body of the method that that parameter might be optional you know what i mean yeah no i think um yeah if they if there's yeah there i see the distinction you're talking about and i really agree with it 
I think that that really comes down to the difference between being on the inside and the outside of the function. What do you know as a person who's using it as opposed to the person who's actually implementing it, you know, the implementation? So if the default behavior is, is good, you can basically make defaults inside of the method which um, hide from the user certain things about the system and uh, give them an experience where they don't, simply don't have to care, then it's perfectly fine. This gets to something else, I think, in terms of default behavior. Default behavior is good as long as it basically jibes well with the user's vision of the universe, pretty much. Like a good example of this is uh, you know, a lot of string operations in various different languages. You can have uh, an operation to go and get, say, the, um, you know, the second element from the end of a list, right? Uh, getting the second element from the beginning of a list is pretty easy because you just basically use indexing to go and get it, get it. You use a positive index. But many languages now set it up so that you can actually pass like a negative index. And then uh, when you're passing a negative index, you're working from the tail of the list, right? Yeah. Uh, or the end of the string. And um, that's nice as long as people know that that's the behavior, right? As long as people have that as like a, you know, it's well understood industry behavior that if you use a negative index, you're going from the uh, right side of the string. Otherwise, it's confusing. Is there a potential error there? Yeah, there's a potential error because you could have some some operation that goes and produces a negative number inadvertently, and then all of a sudden you're going from uh, the right end of a string and you didn't really anticipate that happening. But it comes down to what we have as our working set, our understanding of the system on the caller end, right? Uh, what do we basically see as acceptable values that we can go and pass in? As long as we have a good story for the callers about what the behavior happens to be, it doesn't matter whether we're using default values on the inside or not. Just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about a brand new sponsor on the show, and that sponsor is Rollbar. So like we've been talking about on this episode, one of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. You know, relying on users to report errors, digging through log files, trying to debug issues, or having a million alerts flooding your inbox, ruining your day. Uh, With Rollbar's full stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster with a lot less noise. So Rollbar is super easy to install. You can start tracking production errors into deployments in eight minutes or less. It works with all major languages and platforms, including Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, Node, iOS, Android, and more. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow easily, so you can send error alerts to Slack or HipChat or automatically create new issues in GitHub, Jira, Pivotal Tracker, all sorts of cool integrations like that. Rollbar actually has a special offer for Full Stack Radio listeners as well. So if you head to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio and sign up there, you actually get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days, which is about 300,000 errors tracked for free. So give Rollbar a try, check it out, rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. Back to the interview. We talked a little bit about the, the null object stuff and kind of like being able to provide uh, defaults that prevent you from having to special case your code, and the idea of optional types that make it explicit when you might be working with null so that when you uh, are forced to actually get the value of that, you know that you have to check for the null case. Are there mm-hmm. any other uh, strategies that you run into often that can help kind of simplify error handling in general? Yeah, one thing, uh, well, I wouldn't say simplify. I think making things more explicit is the, the direction I go in uh, okay. in many cases. And one of them really is to go and basically make them part of your domain, right? So if you think about, like, say, a point-of-sale system, for instance, one thing that quite often happens is you you get a SKU or a barcode, you need to go and look up an item for it. And um, you've got a whole bunch of options when that happens, right? You can say, well, I go to the inventory... I go to the SKU, I go and get back an item if it exists. If it doesn't exist, uh, what do you do? You could return null, and then the caller has to go and deal with the null, right? Yep. You could throw an exception, then you have to basically deal with the exception, and that's 
I think one of the most, uh, you know, I like Java, but one of its legacies is basically to make everybody believe that exceptions are the way that you handle all errors. And uh, <laughs> it's really unfortunate. Um, so yeah, you can throw an exception and then you have to figure out where to, you know, where to catch it, what you're going to do about it. You could return a null object, right, from the uh, inventory. But it would have to be an item, a null item that actually plays well throughout the rest of the system, and that could be problematic. But another way of handling this as well is to go and um, say, look, there's an interface I talk to when I can't find something. And there's a method on the interface that basically says, um, item not found for barcode, right? And uh, you pass the barcode to it. It can be logged. Something else can happen behind the scenes. But now it's part of your domain. And now it's not special, okay? Um, because when you think about it, this is not... This is not like the network going out, right? This is really something that you, you know, you can basically anticipate this sort of thing happening. And it's really, you know, it's really important for us to go and basically think through these cases and, you know, recognize that they are not, you know, errors of the class of like you know, kicking out a network cable, right? So in a case like that, how would the, the consuming code, like the code that's asking for the item uh, in inventory, know that it wasn't found and to like do something different? You know what I mean? If it's just getting a return value back. Well, see, the thing is with that, you can set it up so that you just have a return value coming back, or you can flip things around. Um, you've heard about, like, tell, don't ask as a strategy? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that there's really a lot of power with that when it comes to uh, writing code that uh, has to deal with errors as well. When you return values back to people, you're immediately in the situation where you have to decide what to do with something that you've got, right? And it could be something which is a normal case. You just treat it like a real object because it is a real object. It could be a null object, and then you should be able to treat it like it's just a real object. If it's not, you have to go and check to make sure that something's, you know, everything is okay with it. When you flip things around, it's kind of like uh, you say, hey, you know, I'm going to give you an item when I find it, right? Uh, what happens if you don't find an item? Well, you just simply don't make that call, right? It's kind of like if I'm telling a display that I basically have received an item and, or that an item is available to display, and that was triggered by somebody going and sending me a barcode. I had the choice of just not calling the display with that information because it just isn't there. So who would not call the display, though? That's the part that I think I'm having a hard time. Well, you can have some kind of a... Yeah, I don't know. So this is like a... Point of sale is a, a very interesting domain. I've seen too many systems that do it, right? Okay. <laughs> but uh, what the thing which is actually going and doing the lookup, okay? Uh, you basically tell it here, you've got a barcode you know, uh, do something with this and then it's going to go and send an item over to say the display, for instance, or the sale, the shopping cart. So it's almost like you're passing, like it's, it sounds like an opportunity for using like blocks or closures where you're kind of like passing in the details about like, Hey, look this up. And then I need you to, to do something with it if you find it and kind of giving the, that I have one part of the system that goes and says, look, I got a new barcode. You send it to the thing which goes and does the lookup. If it actually goes and, finds an item, it sends it over to the shopping cart, right? Yeah. Or it goes and calls through an interface going and saying, was well, not able to go and find this particular thing. And how you implement that interface is really up to you, right? The shopping cart may not be involved in that case at all. It may just be something where you say, I want to go and you know log the fact that we couldn't find something for this particular item. Uh, I want to put something on display saying that, hey, this is, you know, there's a scan for this thing, but it just doesn't really exist. So maybe the shopping cart doesn't have to know at all. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting to think about solving problems in that way where you're almost like putting the receiving object in control of like what's going to happen after you after you yeah. tell it to give you what you're you're asking for you know what i mean yeah but it's uh it's kind of radical in the sense that 
I, it's funny. I think people look at tell, don't ask in a couple of different ways. But I think the, the more radical interpretation is that essentially you just call functions with uh, void return types, right? And it's just like a unidirectional like flow the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, you can't always do that, right? And it's not always the most practical thing to do. But I think that um, in cases where you can, you can sort of orient your system so that you don't have to do quite as much error checking. Some errors can surface in, in other ways, like... Uh, in this particular case here, we'd have to know that it's okay not to tell the shopping cart that, that there was a scan, for instance, right? The scan goes to the thing which goes and looks up the item, and maybe an item just never arrives in the shopping cart, and that's okay. But you know, I think the, the core thing of this, too, without getting into any you know hypothetical design with this, is that when you see an error in your system or the potential for an error, what you should do first is ask yourself, what does this mean to the business? What does this mean to the user, Right. And then use that to basically work backwards and figure out how you're going to go and approach it. Can you give an example that is interesting for that? I think with this one, we can say, well, point of sale, for instance, right? Why don't we, um, if somebody goes and scans an item and the item does not exist, right? Uh, what do we want to have happen? And it could be that we want to go and log this information for somebody else. And it could be that we want to have the display indicate to the user, to the operator, that there was a problem with this item, right? Yeah. So... At that point, it comes down to saying, you know, our ultimate effect here is we want to go and have the logging occur and we want to go and have this thing up on the display. Then we get to work our way backward to configure this out. I think the cleanest approach with this is to go and use that interface, as I was mentioning earlier, because then it becomes, it shows up in our domain. Uh, the thing that I think is really problematic for many people is that they say, oh, I've got an API call to an inventory. I basically give it a SKU, a barcode, and it returns nine back to me, but it can return null, right? And it's like, ah, what do I do then, right? Mm-hmm. At that point, you're you're deep down in the code, and it's not exactly clear what to do. You put a check in, maybe you do your logging there, you clutter things up that way. Um, another way of handling this that is much more common is like, oh, I'm calling this thing, and it's going to throw an exception that it can't find something, right? Yeah. Um, the way that this happens more often than not is when you have a person who's designing that abstraction, the thing that's going to go and return items back to you, and they're kind of like, I don't really know my caller, you know? I don't really know what my caller needs, so I just know that this is a bad thing that can happen. What I'll do is I'll throw an exception, right? Yeah. And then you're kind of passing the buck to another developer, right? And this happens a lot in component-oriented development where you have one team working on one thing and another team working on another thing, right? And that's why I say, really, if you want to deal with errors in a very good systemic way, you've got to go back and say, what does this mean to the business, right, this particular case? And um, when you approach it that way, then you're getting uh, fewer situations where you're kind of passing the buck. I feel like some people would argue that that introduces like coupling. You know what I mean? Hmm. Uh, in what sense? Like if if now all of a sudden like some isolated component that before could just throw an exception when something went wrong now yeah. has to like know more about the context of what it should do based on what's using it. I feel like some people would argue that you're kind of making too many things in the system aware of like different other things. I don't know. It's kind of like a, I haven't thought it through too deeply, but yeah. it's just kind of something. No, no, I, 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 I get where you're going because, uh, yeah, I think an area where this, where air handling is very frustrating to me is when you use third party components, mm-hmm. right? Because in those cases, they really don't know who the caller is at all. Right. So they really do have to go and, um, use that approach of saying, you know, this, this is a bad thing that's happened. Here's an exception. I throw it and you have to figure out whether it's important to you or not, um, how to deal with those things. But it seems for, um, for teams, right. And for organizations which are developing software across, you know, uh, an application, developing, um, 
several teams working together on something, or even the same team. Um, it's not so much coupling as basically just having a domain, right, and understanding that that uh, this is a thing that can happen um, at a very physical level. If you have a uh, uh, if you have a component which basically says, you know, somebody gave me a scan, I can't find it, and you call a method on that interface saying, hey, I couldn't find a scan. That still feels like it's local enough in understanding that it's not really coupling against much other, you know, it, it, the lookup fails. You know, that's, that's all within the same mindset. So, and using the interface goes and breaks the physical coupling. With the interface that you're talking about, from like a purely mechanical point of view, would you be passing that interface like along when you're asking for, you know, when you're looking up the product so that the thing that's looking up the product can call, you know, methods on the interface? Is that kind of like the approach that you're talking about? You can do that. Um, you can also basically uh, kind of pass it along on construction as like, uh, you know, an interface that basically uh, uh, the component uses for um, for venting, general venting. Sure. Yeah, that you makes know? sense. I guess it and depends thing, on your approach, right? Like if yeah. if it's if there might be like multiple implementations, I guess, floating around in the same system and it's kind of like context dependent, maybe then mm -hmm. it probably makes more sense to pass it as a parameter at the time of call. Yeah. So much of this is contextual. Um, it really is. I've seen people do separate, you know, uh, error reporting interfaces or, you know, as well, just going and adding those methods into, um, you know, the typical information that a component throws off. It really depends. And quite often it's evolutionary. It's like you may start out having a, a single interface that goes and covers, um, you know, both anomalous situations and the normal case and then discover that you want to separate them out. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Talking about the exception stuff a little bit, one thing that I found myself using exceptions for that I feel like it took me a while to really notice the situations where I was doing it and what they had in common was if I needed to like call some method on some object and perform some operation, but depending on like whether that succeeded or failed, uh, I needed different information to react. So like I found like, say like you were like validating like some user input or something and you have some object that's designed to do that validation. If like the validation is successful, I want to do one thing, and I don't really need any information, but if the validation fails, then maybe I need to know what the errors were and I need to operate on those. And I feel like some people do things like having like mixed return types where if something, you know, fails, it can give you back an array of errors or something, which feels kind of, kind of weird to have this interface that can kind of do multiple different things. But then in other situations, I've just like bundled the errors up into an exception that I could, you know, fetch them off of and catch the exception. And it's never felt like, a really good approach to that problem. Have you ever like run into situations where it seems like depending on the result of a, a method call, you need different information from the thing that you were calling? Yeah, that happens periodically. I, I think uh, it's it's funny because we can get back into the tell don't ask thing and say, look, you pass two things in. They can be closures or they can be objects that you know handle the case of like this is what you want to do when it's successful. This is the thing you want to do when it's um, unsuccessful, and of course, the uh, the thing which uh, handles the unsuccessful case would, um, in its like you know, execution method, would go and accept the information that it would need to go and do that kind of work. Yeah, um, it's a bit more work, and I think that's the thing that kind of bothers people with this sort of thing. Is that, yeah, it really is a little bit more work to go and do that sort of thing. But I, I really, you know, I'll use exceptions when they're part of an API. I have to go and work against, um, but I really try to avoid them, you know, quite often. The thing which is problematic to me is that. Um, they just don't really feel that hygienic in a way, right? It's kind of like uh, at any point somebody can go and actually throw, and then you go and you catch at the top. You get a bit of distance between the problem and uh, where you get to handle it, which is great. But the downside of that distance is that you may have changed state inadvertently, which 
in a way that doesn't get rolled back when you um, get up to the catch, right? Yeah, so you have to kind of be thinking about that through every step that it's bubbling back up through. Like, might I need yeah. to catch this exception that might have got thrown by something deeper down and revert something? or Right, do I have partial work that I need to go and actually like clean up, that kind mm-hmm. of thing? And so I really feel strongly that exceptions were one of those mechanisms that kind of um, came up in the industry uh, kind of early, but they're really kind of half a mechanism that what we really want is transactions, right? You'll see very much uh, like in Erlang, for instance, there's the notion that you have processes and you create a supervisor tree and if something goes wrong, then you, um, you, know, you just kill the process and then something above you is notified. But whatever state you had there, you know, it just disappears. You know? There are like, exceptions to that in, in how it uses like, its internal database and stuff like this. From what I understand, I haven't really you know, done much in Erlang. But it seems like transactions are more of the concept that we really want to have with these. Yeah, it's all, it sounds like that's one of the benefits in general, I guess, of like immutability too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Kind of darting back to something that you uh, said earlier, you were talking about uh, you've run into situations where working with third-party libraries makes it harder to take this sort of approach or use the, some of the ideas that you're talking about. It sounds like maybe that's like yet another reason why another thing that would kind of encourage you to kind of wrap these third party things up into things that like you control. So you can kind of be in charge of the style that you're using in your code. Is that something that you think of as an important rule or do you have opinions on that in general? I have a, I have a strong bias towards doing that. And uh, like the early days of test driven development, one of the things that I you know learned early on is that, you know, you may have this interface that an API is presenting you and chances are you don't have to call all those methods. Right. People who develop libraries, they develop something that's uh, good for a wide range of users. And your, your needs as a user are quite often far less. And what's the one I remember seeing like you know, back in the um, early web days, like uh, HTTP servlet request in Java. And it had like 20 some odd methods. And um, visiting a team that had that, inter- that interface passed all throughout its system. And um, when I looked, there were only about three methods on that interface that were ever really used. So I said, hey, let's create this abstraction, we'll call it this, we'll go ahead and be able to use the language of your domain and then wrap this interface and you don't have to, you know, pass this spooky interface that has 20 methods that you, you know, maybe, you know, 15 or so ones that you don't care about. Yeah. So there's there's that. I think uh, because libraries come at you at a level of uh, domain agnosticism that doesn't really help you, uh, that's one good reason to wrap things. Um, having said that, though, I, I run into over and over again cases where it's just not practical to go and uh, you know, wrap some third-party libraries. That essentially, you're you're ending up creating code that is uh, very glue-like. There's very little computational that happens. It's kind of like translating from one API to another. So wrapping in those cases is uh, pretty much futile. Can you think of an example where you chose not to do that? Yeah, it was a uh, work I was doing with like uh, like Java Mail API years ago. And um, it's really a very hairy API. And um, I looked at all different ways of wrapping it for the application I was working on, but it just didn't seem practical. It just seemed like I just had to you know, dig in and use each of the pieces individually. Just wanted to take another quick break to thank longtime sponsor Laracasts for continuing to support Full Stack Radio. Laracasts is a de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels. Whether you're new to Laravel or hoping to level up your dev team, Laracasts was constructed entirely and exclusively for you. There's over 700 screencasts on there now, covering just about every development topic you can think of, from object-oriented design, refactoring, test-driven development, to working with Git or building complex UIs with JavaScript frameworks like Vue.js 
Node.js and React. If it can be learned, Laracast will teach it to you. Starting this week, we actually have a special offer from Laracast as well. So if you sign up with the coupon code FULLSTACK2016, all one word, all caps, you'll get 50% off your first month, giving you access to over 120 hours of content for under 5 bucks. So definitely check it out at Laracast.com, and thanks to them as always for supporting the show. One thing that I think is interesting with the tell, don't ask stuff that I've heard some people talk about before that I'd be interested in getting your opinion on is I've heard people say that trying to take like a really tell, don't ask approach to programming can lead to situations where you start stuffing a lot of mixed responsibilities into objects because you don't want to query them and then act on their behalf. You want to like delegate, delegate, delegate constantly. You know what I mean? Is, mm-hmm. is that something that you thought about at all? Like I can think of an example where maybe you would have like, um, maybe you have like some presentational concerns where you're trying to like the classic example I feel like is um, say you have like a system where you can have users that are logged in or you can have people that are visiting the application that are not logged in. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of time people will talk about creating like a guest object. So instead of having to say like, Oh, if, if, the user's logged in, then, you know, display their name and their avatar in the top corner of the website or whatever, right? And right. if there's nobody logged in, then show, like, the the sign-up button. Mm-hmm. If you're taking, like, a really tell-don't-ask approach or, or you want to, like, use polymorphism to kind of remove that conditional, then what you end up having to do is basically put the information in the user object saying, like, give me your, like, HTML for the header, and then the mm-hmm. guest object has like, give me your HTML for the header. You know what I mean? And I feel like you can run into situations where you start having a lot of mixed concerns by taking like a really strict approach like that. Is that something that you've thought about much or do you think there's... Can you can you elaborate on that? Give me the HTML for the header. Who's saying that? Yeah. So say you're in, in your template, right? And yeah. You, pa- you pass like this user object to the template. And um, normally you would say like, say that you pass like some service that like can tell you if someone is authenticated, right? Like say you have like an auth object or something and you have a method like check that tells you that returns true if someone's logged in or false if someone's not logged in. Yeah. And in, in your template somewhere, you're saying like, if auth check um, render this profile picture, you know, get the user from the service and render their profile picture and their name. You mm-hmm. know, Else, if no one is logged in, then render this, you know, sign up button or whatever. Yeah. And if you wanted to remove that conditional, you'd have to be able to pass something into that view that can like polymorphically give you back the right content for that Mm -hmm. um, piece of the header. So you can just say like, you know, give me, I I don't know what you would call the method, right? It even gets difficult there. But one of them is going to return HTML for a sign up button. And the other one is going to return an avatar and the user's name. And you just tell it to render and it's going to put the right thing there depending on whether the person is logged in or not without you having to like interrogate the system and ask. I've heard people talk about that as kind of like a tell, don't ask approach in some ways. And I I feel like there are benefits to doing that sort of thing in a lot of cases, but in a lot of other cases, it can kind of clutter up the concerns in an object. I'm wondering if that's something that you've thought about at all. Yeah. Every once in a while you see people talk about that sort of thing, like in a presentation context like that. And I'm kind of like, it does smell funny to me. It does seem like, um, kind of pushing too hard, you know, it's, if you ignore the pun of pushing too hard with Todd on the ask, right? Uh, so I'm not really sure I would actually go that far, you know, with it there. The thing that I really uh, do like to do is uh, push Todd on the ask as much as possible, quite often in, in the domain code, right? In the code where, you know, you really are doing computation, you know, and uh, it's uh, code that should be around for a period of time because it is a bit of extra work to go and do that. And if, you know, if you're dealing with like... Um, to the degree that you're basically able to avoid dealing with other complications, 
uh, like uh, rendering and stuff along those lines. It's nice to uh, bolster that area by going and using a cleaner model that way. So yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what I would use as my criteria for going and saying, you know, here's where I don't want to go and do that. But I know that for more domainish code, where I'm not really interacting with uh, particular technologies, um, that's what I lean towards. I think uh, I think what's interesting there is just the idea of like pushing these ideas in general. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I've always found like when I'm uh, working with some like new approach to programming or some new style or or, or anything. I learn the most by pushing it to like its logical extreme. And yeah, like, yeah, me too. Did you have any other examples of situations where that's been useful to help kind of get a better understanding of a concept or any particularly interesting stories there? Uh, yeah. I, um, uh, years ago, I became fascinated by what is now being called collection pipeline programming. I think that's the term that Martin Fowler is using for it. And um, we were talking to him once and he, he was kind of, amazed that people were fascinated by this because it's something that's very typical to do in small talk and nobody thinks it's really special there. Um, but collection pipeline programming is basically starting out with a collection and then sort of uh, applying an operation to it and then another operation to the result and another operation to the result, right? So uh, you say this.map.reduce.select.chain of calls that way. And it's a very natural way of approaching collections within small talk. But we're only starting to uh, see this uh, in widespread use now because uh, we finally have closures in just about every programming language that's available to us. So years ago, I started digging into this and saying, wow, I really like this kind of pipes and filters approach where you start with a collection, you end with a collection, and you do all the work in a chain of calls because there's no conditionals that are happening. And uh, it can be you're using these higher-level operations to, uh, to do the work. So I went through a phase working in Ruby and try to solve every problem that I could using those things. And, of course, I would end up with code that would be kind of scary to show to coworkers, right? Because people are not used to seeing code that kind of works in that particular way. But I feel like I really learned a lot about uh, when you can do that and when you can't. And, um, yeah, it's fascinating. I think there's still a lot of um, work we can do in that direction. And, uh, yeah, I feel rather strongly about it. One thing that I think is interesting about that stuff is I feel like I find new ways to use it like on a constant basis. I'm always finding mm-hmm. ways to solve a problem using that style that a couple of weeks before I might not have thought was possible to solve yeah. using that style. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested in knowing if you have any like if any particular problems come to mind that you've solved using that stuff that you would think maybe people who are new to that style of programming would never expect could be solved in that way. Oh, wow. Reach for this particular example I want to reach for, but um, let me give you a simple one, and maybe I can give you a, a more complicated one later. Sure. One thing that I find interesting is that well, every language is going to use different names for some of these operations. Like there's, you know, uh, in Smalltalk we have, we call it inject, and then it's called reduce, and functional programming and something's called fold. Mm-hmm. But some operations just don't really get as much play as you think that they should, right? There's an operation from Haskell called zip, and you'll see it in a number of different languages. Ruby has a zip function also. What it does is it takes two collections and goes and gives them to you by pairs, right? If you have two lists, um, you have a list with A, B, C, and a list with 1, 2, 3, you'll end up with a resulting list, which is basically the pair of A and 1, and then the pair of B and 2, and the pair of C and 3, right? Okay. So a list of lists. And I remember seeing this in the early days of um, you know investigating functional programming and saying, this is just goofy. It's like, you know, why did they introduce this operation? What does it actually do for us, Right. Because you're like, you know, okay, sure, you can zip things, you can unzip things. You know, what's the utility of it? And um, I don't know quite how it happened across this. I guess in some example someplace. 
I saw somebody basically take do the zip of a list with itself, but without the head, right? So kind of like the zip of like um, A, B, C, and um, B, C, right? And then when I saw what's going on with that, I thought, okay, well, this is kind of cool because what you end up with then is a list of every element and its successor, right? A list of pairs where every pair is its element, an element and its successor. And I thought, oh, now I finally get it. I mean, this is really a very, pretty powerful operation. And um, it seems like in the industry we're going and we're moving, we're moving forward in this uh, really nice way, uh, allowing us to remove a lot of conditionals and loops in our code. But there are a lot of loops that are really all about going and performing some computation uh, based upon the current value and its successor. Uh-huh. And if you do this thing of going and zipping a list with, um, with itself offset by one, you can, in a very functional way, go ahead and perform those kinds of operations. In Ruby, they call this each cons, and you have a parameter. You can basically say how many uh, how many elements you want to go and have. So it stands for each consecutive, right? Mm-hmm. And um, there's like things like in uh, in filtering where you want to go and sort of like have a window of maybe three or four operations, and you can or three or four elements, and using uh, each cons or like zipping, you know, uh, that way can help you out with things quite a bit. Yeah, I've I've played with the zip function a little bit. I was using it for this problem where I had to calculate like the hamming distance between two DNA strands. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. so that one was like a logical solution or a logical way to use it. But like the idea of being able to use that operation to like have context, like when you're looking at one item and being able to know mm-hmm. like the item before and the item after to make some decision is like a really interesting uh, way to approach it. I saw you do like a, you have a blog post where you were talking about like building guitar tab from, <laughs> Like yeah, a, yeah. a list of uh, string and fret pairs, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought that was like a, a really fascinating solution. I wouldn't, it'd be cool to hear you kind of explain how that one works if you know it off the top of your head. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I have a friend in Miami. I, I'm involved in music a bit. And um, he's a classical composer. And uh, he wanted to go and have a simple utility that would go and produce guitar tablature from a file of pairs of numbers and for people who don't quite have that background when you play guitar it's like every string has a number associated with it in tablature and you have fret positions and um, what you want to do is basically have like a file where uh, the first number on the line was the string number and the second number was the fret position and every line would be a note and um, tablature is really a notation where you just have like for the six strings of the guitar you have six lines on a page and you have a number on each one of those um, you have numbers on each on those lines, which go and indicate when you press a particular fret on that string. And um, of course, I looked at this and said, "Wow, I can do this in a very naive way." But I was really back in that mode that you and I were just talking about, which is like, how do I learn something here in this simple kind of toy program? How do I basically go ahead and try to do something different programming-wise that teaches me something? And I started thinking about using the collection pipeline approach and. Um, what I ended up with, if I can recall this correctly, was uh, taking all the input that I had, right, breaking it into lines, breaking each one of those lines into pairs, right, yep. and then performing a mapping operation so that what I did was um, each one of those pairs had a string number and a fret number, and I was creating a column, okay, that would be a column of that tablature notation, and it would consist of these fields of like say three dashes, okay? Each row in the column would have like three dashes. It would represent this, a segment of the string. But I superimposed on those three dashes a number if they were supposed to be pressing the fret at that particular um, time. So if I had like say uh, three two as the line that was coming in, yep. 
I would create a column where basically on the third row of that column, it would say dash, dash, two. And all the other ones would just be three dashes. So I had a column. And then the idea was to go and take these columns and kind of like smack them all together and print them out line by line. And what I arrived with that is that essentially there's an operation, a matrix operation called transpose. And what you can do then is you can say, okay, well, what I want to do is I have all these columns. I want to transpose them so that I actually have lines. And then I have the lines I can print out each one individually. And um, I arrived at this idea a while back. Nobody ever tells you this, but it's like that zip operation that we just mentioned. Yeah. It's really the same thing as a transpose, like a I was, matrix I was, transpose. I was honestly just, that insight came to me yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> so it's but kinda it's, interesting. Um, I'm amazed at how much I've read about functional programming and done over the years. And it's like, nobody ever told me that a zip is a de degenerate transpose. So zip is when you have two lists and you want to basically see them as columns, right? Mm -hmm. And transpose, you just have end lists and you essentially want to go and sort of flip them around and see them as columns. Um, so I think... Uh, there's a lot there, and I think this is one of the things that excites me the most about programming right now is that I really enjoy see, seeing people find different ways of looking at problems because I think that when you see different ways of looking at problems, you can find simpler solutions in many cases. And um, sometimes that has us reaching for tools we might, might not be familiar with all the time or abstractions we might not be familiar with all the time. But some of these things are from mathematics. Um, uh, I have a feeling that collection pipeline programming is going to lead us towards uh, this very old programming language called APL, which is, uh, it irritates a lot of people because it uses all these strange mathematical symbols. But the core idea of APL is that everything is just collections of data that you transform. And uh, you have high-level operations, and people live and breathe transposes in APL. Right? They just um, reach for that very easily because they're used to thinking in that particular way. And um, to the degree that we actually have those um, in our mental palette, you know, we can uh, solve lots more problems. And to me, that's really exciting, you know? Yeah, transposes are really... That's one that I'm still figuring out how to... Like, when to notice that it's going to help. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's great to hear you're on that path with that, though. I, I really... Like, I, I get a kick out of that that whole thing of, like, let me go ahead and find a different way of solving this problem. You know, let me go ahead and sort of, like, use this particular toolkit and try to press it a bit. Yeah, it's fun to just impose, like, artificial constraints on yourself and force yourself to solve a problem without using a loop or without uh, using any conditionals or without using any temporary variables or things like that. Yeah, it's funny. I read uh, years ago, I never really had, like, a formal musical education, but they say that when you're taught composition, sometimes, uh, you know, the teacher will say to you, it's like, okay, I want you to write a melody, but only three notes, right? Mm -hmm. And somehow that kind of triggers the creativity when you have to work within constraints. I think that's a really important idea in general like i know that i really struggle with basically anything where i have to start from like a blank canvas you know what i mean yeah. if, if if i can do anything i want i have a hard time producing anything mm -hmm. i prefer to like have some sort of constraints to work in i don't know i i definitely agree that it leads to creativity and it forces you to like okay i know what i have to work with how can i make this work you know what it's I mean? the uh, the emotional end of the paradox of choice right it's like Oh my God. It's like, I can do anything. What, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, another example that I saw you uh, tweet out, uh, I guess it was last year uh, with this collection pipeline stuff. You did this thing where you're calculating like the, uh, the different or how a method length has changed over time. Yeah. And, um, I'll just link it up in the show notes so people can look at it. But sure. the way that you use the spaceship operator to like uh, <laughs> yeah. access an index in, in an array, I got a big kick out of that for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's um, 
It's funny. I, I have to admit that I do have a, a predilection to something I'll call like stunt programming in a way, right? Yeah. It's kind of like a, sometimes you find something which is really elegant, but you, you really have to figure out who you're playing with, right? You know, are you going to play well with your teammates and the people that are part of the open source project you're with and stuff like that? Um, yeah, I'm sure the listeners will enjoy seeing that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's funny. I think that there's, uh, there's, obscurity that we can introduce in our programs which serves no purpose at all okay i mean i don't think obscurity is the right word for this but i think that it's useful sometimes to go and basically give people a little bit of a stretch in code but stretch in a way that's productive right so i've noticed this over and over again when i've worked with people and done some collection pipeline programming i'll say let's use each cons here and then sometimes i'll get that that thing of like, you know, it's just going to confuse people, right? If you're using each cons for this, it's kind of like people are not used to seeing that. I'm kind of like, yeah, but you know what? Once they look up each cons, they know it now, right? And once they know that, it's kind of like their palette becomes wider with these things. And um, I think to be responsible in this space, you have to kind of like ask yourself, is this thing that I'm using, which may not be typical for people, for the people that are around me, you know, first of all, do I have their consent? And then secondly, can I pick the things there that are going to help us help move us forward in terms of going and finding different ways of solving problems uh, in terms of, uh, you know, reaching for uh, more powerful tools, you know? Yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting to try and find that, that balance between like, is this complicated to understand just because of a lack of familiarity or is it actually complicated to understand? And I really don't know. I really don't know how much of that is. Um, it's hard to figure that out because that comes right down to how the brain works. I know that I've talked to people at uh, various conferences about some of the this thing about moving towards like the APLish languages. And everyone saw I put up a slide with a lot of Chinese on it and say that here's a language which is so complicated that only several billion people in the world read it every day. And uh, I think that really is true. That we um, we forget how much we know and we forget how much um, uh, how much of our uh, unfamiliarity can be overcome by enculturation. Yeah. I've, I still find like regularly if I'm introducing someone to a solution that's just using like really basic fundamental kind of functional building blocks, like map, reduce, mm-hmm. filter, you know, if someone's never seen it before, they will say like, you know, I don't see how this is clearer or how this is like easier to understand at all yeah. be- just because they're not f- familiar with it. Right. So it mm-hmm. makes me, it makes me more comfortable with like trying to take things to the logical extreme and learning more about like, like, you know, transpose, like if someone is, isn't ready for map, their transpose is going to be, a, yeah. it's going to screw with their head completely. Right. Yeah. But, um, it's interesting to find out to kind of play with it. And it's over time, like I can never imagine living in a world where I had to use, you know, a, a collecting variable in a loop instead of a map now. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's, it's been a fun ride for sure. Yeah. And I know when I first started programming, this was like right prior to the, the boom in object orientation. So I took courses in structured design and development and stuff like that. And um, there was a big feeling at that point in time that, you know, objects were too hard. The average programmer would not be able to go and get objects. Right. And um, it's true. There were a lot of people that kind of like left the industry, but there were a lot of people just sort of like they, they learned it and they moved on. And I think that we, um, we don't do ourselves any favors when we underestimate what we're able to do. Um, there's a lot of things that people look at and say, this is too hard. And then, you know, you look later, like five, 10 years and everybody's doing it. And that's just the way things go. Yeah. I think it comes, a lot of it comes down to kind of what, what you learned first too, of course. Right. Like, yeah, I remember cutting my teeth on C and, you know, a really kind of 
imperative programming styles and trying to understand object orientation was really hard for me originally. Mm -hmm. And um, it took a long time before it started to click. But now I see people all the time that I interact with online and stuff where like Ruby is their first programming language, which is like a yeah. super object oriented language, right? And, mm -hmm. and they don't have any problem with it at all. Like they've never written a for loop, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because they're used to working with each all the time, or for mm -hmm. example, and it, it'd be interesting. I'd love to talk to someone who, um, whose first programming language was like Haskell, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, because yeah. I still haven't dived into the, the functional programming stuff too deeply. Most of my experience with functional programming ideas has been like applying them in an object oriented language yeah. or a language that's, you know, primarily object oriented. Like the way you see people use enumerable in Ruby, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So it would be interesting to try and understand what someone's uh, view of the programming world is if they learned in a purely functional language. I don't know. Yeah. And no, I think that'd be fascinating too. And it's, I encourage you to like, if you get a chance to dig into Haskell, if you have spare cycles to do it, um, Talking about constraints, it's kind of uh, it throws out all the thing, all the crutches that you normally have in imperative programming. And um, I'm sure that basically, you know, coming at it from uh, having done functional things in Ruby will be a lot easier. But uh, uh, talk about you know using constraints to learn from. I learned a lot by going and digging into Haskell for a while. Would you recommend that um, if someone wanted to learn any functional programming language? You think that would be a good one to uh, to start with? You know, if they had heart for it, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the thing is, it's it's a bit of a rough ride, and you're going to have to go and rethink things and try to understand things. Um, I love the book uh, "Learn You a Haskell for Great Good" because it's kind of like a, a great introduction to things that makes it very easy to go and sort of like uh, uh, get moving with things. But um, it, it comes down to that thing which doesn't really get easier, but you have to kind of enjoy it. Which is kind of like, wow, I know how to solve this problem, but I want to solve it this way. How? And since it takes days of background processing, so it's not like a thing you do as part of your work, but you're kind of like, yeah, I want to create a histogram in functional. How do I do that? How do I? And then it's like, you know, then you're like, aha, finally I found something to do it. Or you talk to somebody else and it's like, yeah, now I see the way to do this. And um, that's that's really productive work, you know, to learn how to reconceptualize problems and reconceptualize the way you might, you know, might solve them. Awesome. Well, I think maybe that's a, a good place to start wrapping things up. Uh, what's the best way for people to keep up with what you're working on and get more information about the error handling book or anything else that's going on with you? Uh, my Twitter account. So that's at Michael Feathers. And also my company is um, at R7K Recon. It's a website with the same name also for that. But I tend to um, put information up there and then link to the blogs that I have, which are at michaelfeathers.silverback.com. Awesome. Is there, is there anything that you want to plug or anything before we wrap up? Uh, not particularly. I, you know, hoping to go and get this book finished uh, pretty soon. I have other ideas around something that I'm working with clients about called uh, symbiosis, about how to go and um, get organizations to understand more about the nature of software because uh, it's vital for many organizations that um, don't have a strong software development background. Um, so I'm writing about that now, speaking about it at conferences. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to be at the Agile Alliance Technical Conference in a couple of months. Um, and I'd encourage people to go to that. It looks like it's going to be a good, strong conference. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on and giving me your time, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure being able to chat with you about this stuff. Okay. Well, thank you very much.
For anyone who's interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be found at fullstackradio.com slash 39. If you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always helpful. And thanks to Rollbar and Laracast for sponsoring the podcast. If you'd like to learn more about some of the collection ideas that me and uh, Michael were talking about towards the end of the episode there, don't forget to check out the landing page for my book, Refactoring to Collections, at adamwathen.me slash refactoring-to-collections. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.